Good morning, everyone. Uh, some people last night expected me uh, to welcome you, but, but uh, that was not the tradition in the past years. I never uh, offered any welcomes on the first night. Um, so you were all unwelcome last night. <laughs> but, but now, of course, you are officially welcome. Um, I want to break with tradition right now too and will be extremely brief in my introductory remarks because more about that sort of subject will be said in the afternoon. Uh, I make you aware that the program for the afternoon has been slightly changed. You should have uh, a piece of paper indicating what the changes are. The main reason for this is that uh, Norman Stone unexpectedly had to cancel his participation uh, a couple of days ago because he had an eye operation and his eye became clouded for a while, so he had to go back. Uh, everything was fixed, but he was asked to stay in town for regular checkups. Um, and uh, was not permitted to travel. So Norman Stone sends his greetings and uh, felt very sorry that he could not attend, uh, attend this meeting. Um, the only other thing that I want to mention before we start with our morning panel um, is an organizational matter, namely the boat trip on Monday. We do need to know as soon as possible who wants to participate in the boat trip and with how many people. There is a list at the front desk. Uh, write your name in there, indicate how many people are in your, in your party. Um, um, at the latest um, tomorrow or so, we must have the exact number in order to charter the right amount of, of boats. So please do that during, during the breaks. And now to uh, our uh, morning, morning session. Um, uh, Jeff Barr, who unfortunately also cannot come uh, because uh, his father fell ill on a trip to Europe with him, um, suggested last year we should have a panel on Murray Rothbard because uh, 2015 uh, is 20 years after his death. Um, and Murray Rothbard, in a way, uh, was for me the greatest inspiration of my life. Without him, I would never have undertaken something like this here. And I'm sure he would have been an, an enthusiastic uh, participant in meetings such as this. Um, most of 
you guys are familiar with his name. Uh, far less, I assume, are really familiar with his work. Some of them, for some of you, might not be familiar with his work at all. Um, and uh, in Europe, uh, almost no people exist anymore who ever knew him. Um, in the United States, there exist a few more. Um, but what I can offer here is um, two people who are his direct students, in the normal sense of being his students, uh, namely Lee Iglody and Doug French. And on the other hand, uh, two people uh, for whom Murray Rothbard was a teacher and a mentor who had relationships with him more as colleagues, namely uh, Tom DiLorenzo and myself. So we will um, uh, report a little bit about his work and life and uh, share some memories that we have in order to uh, raise your curiosity to maybe study his work in in greater detail. And, um, and I will now join this panel and begin making a few introductory remarks about Murray Rothbard, and then the other panelists will comment on that, add something to it. There will be a little bit back and forth. Um, and then, of course, we will also open um, that uh, the discussion, uh, we'll open the discussion for uh, all of you participants here. Uh, you ask questions, uh, uh, difficult ones or easy ones, whatever it may be. Thank you so much so far. So let me begin by giving a very brief overview of, of who Murray Rothbard was and how I met him and what relationship I had with him. Um, if you read the uh, description of um, of the program of the Property and Freedom Society, you will find that there are two people that are explicitly mentioned as people who inspired this entire event. Those two people were also the two most important people in my intellectual development and life. On the one hand, Ludwig von Mises, who I never met. I wasn't even, I knew his name, but I had never read anything of his, before his death in 1971. Um, but I did have the good fortune to meet Ludwig von Mises' most important student, uh, which was Murray Rothbard. And let me say from the outset that 
something that Ralph Reiko, an old friend of ours, historian, a uh, student of Hayek's dissertation at the University of Chicago under Hayek, what he who met Mises as a young man said about Mises. And that was something to the effect of whoever has met Mises as a young man um, will think that all the other professors at the main universities of Columbia and Chicago and Yale and Harvard and Princeton, in comparison with Mises, all these other professors were just a joke. Um, and I can confidently say that whoever has met Murray Rothbard would think the same, that any other professor in the United States was simply a joke as compared with what this man could do, what this man represented. Um, very briefly, Murray Rothbard was probably, after Mises, the greatest economist who ever lived. I think in the field of economics, I rank Mises higher than I rank Rothbard. Mises was, in my view, the greatest economy, economist ever. Um, there is no book like, human, like his human action that uh, matches his achievement. I think nobody will be able to surpass this in, uh, in the next 100 years or more. Um, Murray Rothbard himself also wrote a major treatise on economics, a treatise like they are no longer written, covering everything from the beginning to the end, leaving nothing out, uh, beginning from very simple principles and advancing to the most complicated subjects. But Murray Rothbard was far more than an economist. Murray Rothbard was also one of the greatest political philosophers that ever existed. And as such, I would rank him even higher than Mises because he did far more in terms of interdisciplinary work. His most important works in the field of political philosophy are on the one hand um, for a new liberty and the ethics of liberty. Um, and on top of this, Murray Rothbard was also a magnificent historian. Uh, he wrote a four-volume history of colonial America. He wrote a history of banking in the United States. Um, he wrote uh, a book on, uh, on, the, power on the power elites um, at a time when no internet or anything like this was available that astonishes you simply by the number of people that he knew in detail and all the family connections between various members of, of the power elite. Um, nowadays, these sorts of things are easy to do because all you have to do is Google around a little bit and you find all the relationships. But Murray Rothbard 
never used a computer in his life. He always typed with a, an electric typewriter. Um, so he was, uh, as, uh, uh, as far as technical skills goes, an absolutely low-tech person. Um, very briefly, how I met him. Um, I became aware uh, of Mises' work and indirectly then also of his work. And I uh, had a big grant from the German National Science Foundation that allowed me to go to the United States. I knew that I would not be able to land a job in Germany with my views. So I went to the United States and I sought out Grossbart. And uh, I thought that Rothbard would be a superstar in the United States. Because I was so impressed by his work. I uh, thought he will probably live in a penthouse in, in Manhattan and has groupies all around him, um, only to find out that, that none of that was true at all. So I contacted him, asked if I could come and work with him, and then um, uh, he worked at that time at a university that was called Brooklyn Polytechnic. That was an engineering school and had a very small social science department with some economists, some historians, some sociologists, things like this. Uh, every one of these professors had to share his office with somebody else. In Murray Osbart's office, there was not even a window. The building had been a converted uh, razor blade factory. Um, and uh, I shared an office with some historian of, uh, of that department and um, uh, listened to all his lectures. None of the students knew who he was. Um, they had not the faintest, faintest idea. Um, uh, and uh, when he was out of town giving lectures, then I took, took over and I, uh, I covered his, his classes. Um, and uh, after a year, um, he, for the first time in his life, he received some big time offer. Uh, for an endowed chair at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And he told me that there was an, another opening in the same year and why don't you apply there also. And by lucky circumstances, I got that job and we both moved from uh, in 1986 uh, to Las Vegas. In the last 10 years of his life, for the first few years, I attended all his lectures, uh, but for the last ten years, I was his, yeah, I was his lieutenant bodyguard, um, help, helper, um, and um, had almost daily contact with him. So I think in the last ten years of his life, I probably got to know him better than anybody else. Uh, nobody had as much contact with him as, as I did. 
So now I'll stop. There are lots of little anecdotes uh, to be told, but uh, I will now let uh, Tom say something first, um, and then and then his two direct students. Okay. Um. Well, one little story uh, uh, related to what something uh, Hans just said is um, uh, Ralph Rako grew up with his friend uh, George Reisman, who's another friend of ours. And uh, Ralph once told the story that uh, how he met von Mises. That uh, he said he was he and George were the same age, 16 years old, and they had read an article by Mises in the Freeman Magazine, published by the Foundation for Economic Education. And they found uh, Mises' address in New York City. He says, so these two 16-year-olds just went and knocked on the door. And they, they needed some sort of guise. So they said they pretended to be selling copies of the Freeman. <laughs> and they asked von Mises if he wanted to uh, subscribe to the Freeman. And, uh, uh, and I think the way the story goes is Mises pretty much slammed the door on him. You know, he didn't go away. I already read the Freeman. And the, but that's, that's, that's how Ralph says he, he first met von Mises. Then, of course, our friend Ralph ended up uh, writing his dissertation at Chicago under Hayek. And, uh, and, uh, and Murray did have groupies. Uh, I first uh, got to know Murray when uh, we, we, I started teaching at Mises University, which is the annual week-long uh, seminar for students that the Mises Institute in the U.S. Uh, holds. We just had the 30th, and, uh, and I started teaching uh, these about 25, 26 years ago, and we had them at Stanford uh, University for a while before the Mises Institute building was, was erected. And, uh, and Murray was indefatigable. He, 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 you could not tire him out. He would, uh, he would uh, teach all during the day. And of course, the students would swarm him uh, all during the day. And then he would stay up all night if, if they wanted to. If the students wanted to stay up all night and talk about economics, uh, he would do it. And so uh, uh, and, and one night uh, at Stanford, um, the dormitory, uh, there was a keg of beer that the Mises Institute provided for the students right outside the dormitory. And some of the faculty were trying to sleep because they had to work the next day, election the next day. And I recall, I don't know, I think Murray was actually with this group late at night, 3 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And uh, Professor Roger Garrison uh, got so frustrated that he opened his dormitory window and threw a light bulb onto the sidewalk to break up the party because it was, it was so late. So that's, that's so Murray had, was such high energy. And uh, uh, as far as how I, uh, I always looked at, at Murray, not always, but when I discovered him as a real uh, high bar model of scholarship, the kind of person that I thought I could never be because I, could, I didn't have the intelligence that Murray Roth, Rothbard did. He did these, these, these things that Hans referred to, writing Man, Economy, and State at such a young age that it's just uh, almost beyond belief to an, an academic like myself that, that, that somebody, somebody so young could do, uh, have such wisdom in, uh, that he did. But, uh, but the high bar uh, that Murray set was uh, the first inkling of that was given to me by somebody else. When I first got in my real introduction to Austrian economics in graduate school, when my, my first semester in graduate school, uh, I took a microeconomics course taught by Richard Wagner, and he used human action as a textbook. And, he, and the second textbook was Price Theory by Milton Friedman. And, uh, and Wagner, the first day of class, uh, passed out a quotation. I, f I forget who the quotation was now from now. 
but it's about what it takes to be an economist. It was one of the Austrians. I don't think it was Mises, but, uh, I, but I, I have to try to dig this up out of my old files. But it was about how a, a real economist uh, is schooled in economics and the history of economic thought, but he also needs to know something about philosophy, history, mathematics, logic. And, and, and I think this, was, this is the kind of person Mises was as far as his education. And Hayek was like that too. I can recall listening to a talk by Hayek's son and after his father died and he went through Hayek's papers and uh, he had letters that Hayek had written home when he was a student, when he was in school, about how he was reading on average about 20 books a month and, and these were not light books. These were big, heavy-duty uh, philosophical treatises and mathematical science and things like this. And so these are the, the old-school Austrians. This is how they looked at themselves and how they should ed educate themselves. And, and I never well, was such, so foolish as to think that I could achieve that myself. But I thought that was a good bar to, uh, to, uh, to set for yourself and, and try to come as close to it as possible. So Murray, Murray did have some. Uh, some groupies, and um, uh, and and it is true that compared to the other prof economics professors, uh, it's like comparing an elephant to an ant. Uh, most, most economists these days, you know, I've, I've been in the business for 35 years. Uh, they're basically uneducated frauds, <laughs> in, in my opinion. Uh, uh, Especially if you compare them to someone like a Murray, a Murray Rothbard, who really was a supremely educated person, and, and quite a few others uh, that we know of. And so, uh, so that is true, what Hans says about Murray compared, compared to the rest of them. And so, um, and as, well, the final thing I'll say for now is that uh, uh, part of my training, when I was in school, I, I studied under James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, the Public Choice School of Economics. They, they applied economics, economic analysis, to the study of political decision making. And, uh, and that, at the time, seemed extremely radical for the economics profession, because the economics profession was all about uh, churning out tales of market failure. Markets failed everywhere, you know, because they weren't perfect. And then along came Buchanan and Tullock and some others who started saying, well, governments fail too. You know, what a novel idea. And they developed this whole scientific looking apparatus to explain why it is inherent that government will fail. They, they called it a theory of government failure. And so, so far, so good. And then, but then the whole method, the whole methodology uh, sort of ended up making recommendations to improve the operation of government. Buchanan himself, for example, crusaded for a balanced budget amendment to the US Constitution for many, many years. And I always thought there's something wrong about this. There's something, there's something wrong about I mean, who is to enforce such an amendment? You know, we have, we have a constitution, and there are a lot of things in there that supposedly restrict the powers of government. But even back then in the 1970s, when I was in school, they had all been pretty much abandoned. So I remember thinking, well, why would this one more amendment, amendment be enforced? You know, none of the other ones are enforced very well, if at all. You know, certainly the 10th Amendment had been destroyed 100 years earlier uh, than that. And so, and then when I ran across Rothbard, <coughs> Uh, his writings. Uh, it was a much different approach to government. And you read it. You know, everyone here, if you haven't, you should read his his uh, article on uh, the state and the anatomy of the state, where he says things such as, 
Uh, you know, theft is, uh, is, a, is a sin and a crime, but when government does it, it's okay. It's called taxation, fairness. Okay, well, you know, murder is a crime and a sin, but when the state does it, it's called war or defense. And, and so if you start reading Murray on the nature of the state, and you realize it, it really is a fool's errand to try to reform the state. Uh, it, cannot, it cannot be reformed uh, at all. And, and that guided a lot of my work, a lot of my research. Uh, in, in earlier in my career, I, I wrote books on how politicians escaped restrictions on, uh, on uh, spending and borrowing. It's called Underground Government, the Off-Budget Public Sector. Uh, I wrote another book called Official Lies, How Government Misleads Us. So I wrote a, a co-author and a string of books basically on this is how government plunders you. But I made no recommendations on how we could reform government, you know, to reduce the plunder because it's not possible to reform government. Uh, it, it, it only has to be abolished and, and rooted out, you know, root and branch somehow or another. And, and we can talk about that forever, I guess. And maybe that's all I'll say for now. And I'd like to give the hand this over to one of the youngsters on the panel. I think it's Doug French. Youngster. <laughs> well, I, I, I moved to Las Vegas in 1986 myself. And um, after a couple of years, got the bright idea to pursue uh, a master's in economics and took a couple courses um, that were uneventful. And uh, I was looking through the catalog and I saw this course called EC 742, History of Economic Thought. And um, the teacher was Rothbard. And I had no idea who Rothbard was. Um, didn't know anything about Austrian economics, didn't know anything about anything, really. And uh, although I had attended bar for 10 years, so I know a fair amount about that. It's my last honest job, as I like to tell people. But so um, I asked one of my classmates that I'd had in a couple of the other courses, a guy named Joel Volpe. Um, and I have no idea what Mr. Volpe is doing these days, but I said, hey, what's the deal with this Rothbard guy? Should I take him for this history of economic thought? And he said, no, he's, he's a kook. You don't want to take him. Uh, go ahead and take an independent study with uh, so-and-so. I can't remember uh, who the instructor would have been. And at the time, I was working during the day at a bank, and I didn't, I didn't want to fool around with trying to you know, line up some kind of, you know, special instructor or something like that. So uh, I went ahead and took this Rothbard guy. And uh, I still remember the first night he walked in um, because there was a, a guy named James Philbin, who you guys will uh, remember, but uh, uh, Murray came walking in. He had a, uh, a pocket full of uh, uh, pens and uh, had like five or six pens in his pocket. Uh, and he had this guy following him carrying a stool uh, for him to sit on while he, while he lectured. And I thought, wow, this guy's a big enough deal. He's got a guy following him around with a stool. Um, <laughs> And then he just immediately started talking. There was no syllabus. There was no 
take and roll. There wasn't anything like that. Um, he just immediately started talking about it. And at the time, the, uh, it was the first Gulf War. So he was going, oh, these crazy politicians, they want to, you know, they want to cap gas prices. And, you know, he just went on and on about this. And I noticed everybody around me just started furiously taking notes. And I thought he was just, you know, yakking to, you know, kind of as a warm-up for the class. But no, they were just taking every everything down as fast as they could. And uh, so I started doing the same thing. Little did I know that you could never catch up to Murray's, um, you know, just stream of consciousness sort of lectures um, that were peppered with you know, 10 or 12 reading references uh, per class. And the reading references were not only the title of the book or the author of the book, but what year they were published and which edition it was in. So he would, you know, he had this incredible recall for these, these sources that he had. But um, I went ahead and took, uh, you know, history of thought and did okay. And I took uh, US history uh, from him. Uh, as well, um, wrote a professional paper under him, and then decided to, uh, as it turned out, um, write uh, my thesis under him. But, you know, just to prove that I had no idea who Murray Rothbard was, um, I have a paper in front of me, um, because Murray wrote this book called The Great Depression. Perhaps some of you have heard about it. It is the uh, it is the book about the Great Depression. So uh, Murray had everybody write a paper, and uh, you just had to okay the topic with him. So I go in and I said, you know, I want to write about the Great Depression. He goes, oh, great, Douglas, that's great. And he started ticking off about five, six uh, sources that I could use. And then finally at the end he goes, Oh, yeah, I guess I wrote a book about that. It's called The Great Depression. <laughs> and uh, I don't think anybody who knew who he was would write a paper for Murray Rothbard called The Great Depression. You just wouldn't do it if you knew who he was. So that just, it just goes to show you that I had no idea, um, really. I just thought he was a, I just thought he was a good guy. And, um, Eventually, I went to one of the Stanford events for the Mises Institute, and I was sitting around some people, and they saw my name tag that I was from, that I was from Las Vegas, and they said, oh, do you know Murray Rothbard? And I said, yeah, I took classes under him. And they just, their jaws dropped, and they said, can we have your notes? Can we have your class notes? And I just, it was at that moment that it finally kind of hit me that, uh, that uh, I had been in the presence of, of greatness. And uh, uh, obviously, you know, like Hans, my life's been changed forever. I wouldn't, have, wouldn't, been, wouldn't be here, wouldn't uh, have uh, worked at the Mises Institute or have, uh, you know, the outlook that I have of the world. Um, so, you know, Murray is, um, you know, every once in a while, you know, we tend to downplay what college can do for young people, especially right now, uh, because you can do so much of it online, or you can, you know, uh, you know what good is, are these degrees? And I, you know, I fully support that. 
But then I'm not a very good example because in my case, I went in as, you know, nothing. And then I run into a guy named Murray Rothbard and it changes my life forever. So for those of you who are teaching, you can change somebody's life forever. And uh, uh, I know it can happen, it happened to me, but I've got more, uh, more show and tell for you later, but uh, I'll turn it back to our host and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. I'd like to point out that Doug's paper on the Great Depression in Murray Rothbard's writing is a grade of A and it says excellent underneath it. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Um, regarding his, um, he taught two classes typically a semester. I think at the end it was one. And they were always uh, 6 p.m. classes because Murray, uh, very much a uh, owl, uh, preferred to wake up around noon or so. And some morning classes were out. Uh, many students were converted. The best part about the evening classes were that they were always different. They were titled the same each time, but they were always different. And um, a typical story would be the uh, dean walking in the classroom because only one student had registered for the class, and there's a dozen kids sitting in the classroom furiously taking notes. He's like, what are you all doing here? We're listening to Murray Rothbard. And so, of course, he couldn't cancel the class. But uh, it was a different series of recollections, thoughts, reflections by Murray Rothbard every time he took a class, which for a lot of us was about as close as you could get to being in his apartment on the Upper West Side uh, to the wee hours of the night, listening to his latest thoughts based on whatever he was reading at the time. I ran his last study group as his bodyguard <clears throat> and chauffeur and bag carrier. I didn't carry a stool, but I carried a bag. Um, <laughs> And um, I, I'd gone out to Vegas in 1990. Uh, I'd started out in Brooklyn Polytech in 86, oddly enough. Professor Svidris, who I think has passed away since then, told me to look up Murray Rothbard. I actually pointed to him in his little, dark, dank, crappy office in the crappy building that we were in. But I'd heard from other students that he was off his rocker, and so I had avoided him. And then sure enough, literally within months of him leaving, I had gone through the usual. In America, you, you, just, you end up being a libertarian through Ayn Rand. Um, so I started reading Ayn Rand, went through the footnotes, got to Mises, and then finally got to Rothbard, and I said, oh, I messed up. Worked for a little bit, saved some money, ended up going to Vegas in 90. Um, I worked my way up to being uh, his last um, you know, study group leader, and the process, the bodyguard part was to keep out people who were not interested in you know, grappling with the material, mastering the material, and having sincere and honest questions as part of their quest for truth. In other words, the annoying nutcases. Um, our locations were secret, <laughs> um, but we all knew where, what the location was. And then, of course, make sure that we pick up Murray, um, Professor Rothbard, at the, at the front of the business building and drive him across the street to the restaurant. We were having our meetings um, because he was very much um, adverse to physical activity. Uh, I think I, I, the, the brain metabolizes uh, a lot of glucose, and uh, I think his brain probably consumed uh, more than your typical Olympic athlete. Um, and if you were around him, you figured that out pretty quickly. Now, 
I, I, the last memory I have of him, unfortunately, was uh, at the restaurant having one of these evening sessions, which were semi-disciplined semi, semi in the sense that there wasn't a signed reading. You were expected to read the reading. Um, and then he would start talking about the reading, entertain questions, and then boom, like a rocket, go from there. So uh, let's say we're reading a chapter in uh, you know, Human Action, um, and then we'll go through the World Series, a really good movie, uh, Back to the Spartans, then go back to medieval Europe, go through the Renaissance, back to the, you know, whatever it is, World Series, and then back to human action. Um, that was Murray Rothbard. And so he did have groupies, and the reason he had groupies was because it was really uh, an exciting ride each and every time you took it, and it was never the same ride. Uh, you learned something every single time. Anyway, the last thing he was eating on the last night that I saw him was a jelly donut um, on a plate that he was eating, um, and he had the powdered sugar on his, on his uh, lip, and this was at 7.30 at night. No, eight, eight o'clock at night. Um, like many people, after he passed away, I just sort of wandered the earth for a while, um, did some accounting, and then eventually went to law school and became an attorney. Before um, he passed away, I went through the uh, typical process of a student trying to figure out what my destiny was and what my purpose was. Um, and I had many, many, many discussions with him. And most of these discussions ended with more assignments of reading material, followed up by me coming into his office and saying, okay, did you read this? Yeah, all right, all right so you know, what do you think? And, and then he'd say, okay, well, now you need to read this. Um, and we eventually came to the conclusion that I, was should, I should have gotten a PhD in accounting because uh, my background was in accounting. But um, after he passed away, I gave up on that. And so, like I said, I ended up becoming an attorney. He, his, uh, everybody who met him liked him. He was very personable, um, very charming, had a phenomenal, phenomenal sense of humor. Um, sometime off-colorish, not like David Gordon or so, but um, he, definitely, he definitely had a sense of humor. He loved making fun of people, um, loved making fun of ideas, uh, <laughs> especially when we had visiting, dig not dignitaries, we'd have people visit in Vegas. They'd come, they'd you know, sort of do a pilgrimage, and either they'd visit us in you know, Professor Hoppe's group, which was once a week as well, much more informal, um, or Murray's, which was, a little, like I said, a little bit more structured, a lot less drinking. I'll just put it that way. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes he'd agree with them, and other times he'd nod. And then next time we'd meet, he'd say, Rah, did you hear what he said? Uh, and then he'd go on for an hour and just completely dismantle whatever the position was that the person had taken that he felt was wrong. I'll conclude by saying that what, what brought me to Murray, and which is why I still adore him in my thoughts, is that um, he was one of those individual, well, first of all, he was a genius. There's no question about it. You can sit here and debate that all day long, but he was absolutely a genius. Uh, but he was a genius who was dedicated to trying to discover truth wherever he could find it. Uh, he looked for truth in economics, found it. Philosophy found it. History found it. Uh, politics found it. Um, in this day and age where people are talking about Trump and uh, Sanders and all these other crazy candidates in the United States, we have to remember uh, Murray was excited back when Perot was running. And the main reason he was excited was, he, first of all, he liked the idea of somebody speaking frankly, uh, very entertaining. Uh, but what he liked the idea was he said, look, if, if the American political system gets so debased to the point where there's no truth or value in any label whatsoever, how refreshing it is to find a guy who's actually going to stand up and say, hey, this is the way I'm going to do it. And this is how I call it, and this is who I am. And so I really wish, and I think everybody who knew Murray would agree that he was around today, just so he could criticize, comment on uh, whatever's going on today, whether it be you know crisis in Europe or, or presidential candidates in the United States. I really have to say that um, to have been around him um, to almost uh, daily, um, you it just literally was like a drug. 
and um, I miss it very much, and I still like going back to read some of Murray's old stuff, especially his articles, the things he blasted off at eight, what was it, eight pages a minute? No, eight pages an hour, eight pages an hour on his typewriter. Um, short bursts of just sheer brilliance. Yeah, I feel like maybe a few, a few um, stories about uh, what type of personality he was. Uh, Murray was of Jewish background. His parents came from uh, Poland and Russia, uh, and he grew up in, in Manhattan. And they lived basically all of his life in, in Manhattan. He looked a little bit like, like Woody Allen, uh, and also had clear similarity with um, um, what? Kissinger. With Kissinger. Um, he, once he took a trip to Italy and came back and told me, Hans, you know what happened to me? Was I was sitting in a restaurant and somebody approached me and said, are you Henry Kissinger? Um, <laughs> And he, he was quite appalled. If they would have said, you look like Woody Allen, I would have accepted that. But uh, the comparison with Henry Kissinger did not, did not please him very well. Um, uh, Murray was uh, a late night person. He never got up before noon. He had his... Um, sleeping room darkened completely. He was shocked in the first semester in Vegas when they assigned him to a class in the morning. Uh, in the next semester, that, that was changed because that was not for him. Um, and he, but he worked then until three, four at night, every, every day. Um, he attended parties, left parties, let's say, at one or two at night. And in the morning when I met him, he had written an entire article, 15, 16 pages, on the typewriter, showed me with almost no corrections, just teeny, teeny uh, hand corrections. Um, he could write in an enormous speed. Um, a striking difference existed between his writing and his teaching. Um, there's almost no one who is as organized in his writings as he is. It always starts from the beginning and goes step by step by step. Um, in his lecturing, in regular classes, not necessarily in his public speeches, they were also somewhat organized, but in the lectures in his class, he was very disorganized. You would not recognize that that is the same person who writes what he writes, because as, as you said, it was, uh, uh, he jumped from topic to topic, uh, from Plato to Nixon's price controls, and from Nixon's price controls to uh, uh, St. Thomas, um, and, and from that um, uh, to explanations of uh, how you derive the slope of demand curves, everything uh, jumping back and forth, so he was not particularly popular 
popular with students unless the student somehow had some idea of who he was. Um, but most of the students that I encountered at Brooklyn Polytechnic first and then also in Vegas, they thought, I, I can't follow this guy. Um, he makes no, it makes no sense. It was enormously difficult to take notes because of that, because you had to just make a decision. This is something that is just a side remark. This is something that is of importance. And most of the students are not capable of making these simple distinctions. They take notes on even the most trivial, trivial things that were just uh, off-site uh, off remarks. Um, Murray was also a great comedian. Um, I think he, he would have had the capability of becoming a famous Jewish comedian also. Um, in, yeah, like, like Woody Allen. He was a, a great imitator of voices, um, made great imitations of uh, uh, Bill, Bill Buckley, who was at the time the leader of the conservative movement in, in the United States, he despised him. Um, but um, you could hardly tell the difference. I mean, marvelous imitations of, uh, of people. Um, he lived in, in Manhattan in a rent-controlled apartment. Uh, only on the first floor because he was afraid of height. Uh, he never took the subway because he was afraid of subways. He took the bus uh, to get to his office in, in Brooklyn, which was quite far away from his, uh, um, his apartment in the Upper West Side in, uh, in, in Manhattan. Murray um, was initially afraid to drive in a car, so they had to teach him how to sit in a car. They put him in the back seat. On both sides of the back seat, somebody else was sitting so that he wouldn't look out of the window and get, get confused, so he had to learn this. Um, he was also afraid of flying, so they took training sessions. They flew from New York City to Hartford, which is just a, f a few miles away, back and forth, so that he would learn how to overcome his fear of flying. He did get a driver's license, but his wife prohibited from him from driving because he would have been a danger on on the road um, so he was uh, he was a GPS system for his wife when they uh, when they drove across the country uh, from Vegas to uh, to New York at the, in the last few uh, last few years um, as uh, Lee said, he, he was absolutely opposed to physical exercise. Um, that they had been invited to some, by some people to go to the mountains. He was afraid of the mountains of of the height. Um, in Vegas, when we went to lunch. Um, 
We always went to the same restaurant for lunch, not because it was any good, but that was the shortest distance between the office and the first restaurant. When I suggested, Don Murray, why don't we, uh, hundred yards away, that is a much better place. No, 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 just uh, no, no walking. Um, uh, I should also mention that Murray not only had a huge library and had read all these things, because every book was underlined with marks on the side. To nonsense, what kind of a jerk? Uh, who believes this? Full, full of remarks. Some of them I would not want to repeat here. Um, but not only did he read all of these things, on the side of it, he was interested in almost any subject under the sun. He knew everything about the baseball results, the football results. Um, he knew the history of almost any place. Um, he also had the time to know most of the American soap operas. Um, so it, it, was, it was almost mind-boggling you, you, you could never understand how can somebody f find the time to do all of this. Um, but it was his this enormous mental quickness um, that uh, that uh, that impressed that impressed you. Um, that again, what I said before, he could write articles. Uh, in one or two hours that went out the next day for print. When he died, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, um, at that time it was still a more liberal in the classical sense newspaper than it has become in the meantime, like all major newspapers, he asked me to write an obituary. Um, and I mentioned that he, uh, Murosbert has written more than 20 books and, um, and more than 10,000 articles. And they didn't believe me. So they took the 10,000 out and, uh, and said a thousand or something like that. But it is literally true. Murray Rosbott wrote more than 10,000 articles plus 20 books. Some of them have 1,000 pages. Um, as I said, uh, people have not experienced the speed with which he could work. Um, ca cannot imagine that that is even possible. Um, we tried, I was, I was the second last person, I was the last person in Las Vegas who began using a computer. And the only one who never even made an attempt was Murray Rosbart. He was like, leave me alone with this. I love, my, I love my electric typewriter. And he thought that was already a great technological upgrade because before, a few years before, he just had a mechanical, uh, mechanical typewriter. Um, another little anecdote to tell you what, how he how he lived the first time I went to his apartment in New York that was some New Year's party or something like this um, I walked up the stairs and uh, he came rushing down 
and said, oh, Maria thought we have a party. Uh, yeah, but I have to get 10 New York Times. I said, why do you have to get 10 New York Times, the Sunday editions? Uh, why do you have to get uh, 10 New York Times? Oh, this, the, sink, the sink is dripping, um, and, and the, the super is out of town, and New York Times suck up a lot of water. <laughs> So I have a few more things to say, probably I will just return the microphone to some of my fellows here. Yeah, Murray was uh, very proudly low-tech. Uh, he announced that to me uh, more than once in his office. Uh, but, um, you know, you run into a lot of geniuses that don't necessarily have the best, you know, people skills. Um, but Murray had the people skills and you know the intellectual chops and you know the the uh, the day i defended my thesis of course you know murray's there and hans is there and so forth and the uh graduate coordinator had issued a uh, a department-wide memo that said uh, on thursday april 2nd at 3 p.m doug french will defend his thesis in room 518 since he has not shared his thesis topic with me you will have to learn that on thursday as far as i know his committee consists of murray rothbard hans hoppe and terry ridgeway nevertheless all graduate faculty from the department are permitted to attend the presentation ask questions and to make recommendations to the candidates committee well Murray did not share this memo with me because he knew I'd be outraged because and just to prove it since I know there's so many lawyers in the room I have the documentation for the proposed graduate degree program signed by one Tom Carroll also the document of the appointment of my examination committee signed by none other than Tom Carroll. So he did know all those facts, and of course Murray knew it, and Tom Carroll knew it, but um, as good a, a guy as Murray was, and as Lee said, everybody liked him. He was not treated very well in the department. Uh, I run into a lot of people who think that UNLV was some kind of you know, uh, Galt's Gulch, if you will, of, of Austrian thought, and um, that the, the department was very supportive of all this, and it just wasn't true. Of course, Hans knows this very well. And the last time I saw Murray, and if I remember right, Murray had a phobia about elevators too, right, at one time, and he had to, he had to get over the elevator phobia. And ironically, the last time I ever saw him before he died, which is a couple weeks before, um, I ran into him on the elevator. I had waited for him for about an hour and a half. And then there he was coming off the elevator. But he gave me a, uh, a copy of his, uh, uh, his annual evaluation from the department chair, uh, Chairman Thayer. Now, Chairman Thayer had the distinction of, I think, one article on uh, sunscreen um, yeah something like that but he uh, he had the brass 
to uh, say that uh, Professor Rothbard's performance in the area of professional growth has been disappointing and that his um, uh, professional growth in the um, in scholarship was also disappointing. Uh, and as you can imagine, Murray was somewhat outraged and wrote about, you know, 3,000 words in response to uh, Dr. Thayer. Um, and so um, Murray wasn't treated terribly, uh, terribly well on campus. And those of us who studied, studied under Murray, studied under Hans, um, were not embraced by the Tom Carrolls of the world and the other people who were, were running the department. But all that aside, the happiest guy I ever knew was Murray Rothbard. And uh, that was probably part of the reason I, I used to wait in the hall for an hour, an hour and a half, sitting on the floor. Eventually, chairs began to appear outside his office so that we could all sit down, because we would all line up to wait and talk to Murray. And uh, as Lee mentioned, you'd talk about everything. Uh, from UNLV basketball to soap operas or whatever it might be. Um, you know, of course, soap operas are starting to be canceled these days. And I made a post uh, on Facebook that I can't remember what uh, soap opera which just got canceled, but I said, oh, this is a very sad, Murray would be very sad today. Well, supposedly one of Murray's big fans was outraged that Murray Rothbard would have any interest in soap operas. He said, that's just so ridiculous. And, uh, but uh, some of the people who are fans of his work don't realize, you know, uh, his many, many uh, interests well beyond uh, scholarship. Yeah, maybe I say a few words about our situation that existed in Las Vegas. Um, uh, when we went to Las Vegas, as I said before, Murray Rothbard uh, received an endowed share. That was the first time that he had a, a big salary. Um, I think in Brooklyn Polytechnic, his salary was $37,000, I found out afterwards. And uh, I must say, I feel still ashamed to admit that during that year, I had a grant and that grant paid me well above $50,000. I did not know this. I mean, I thought that Murray was a, a pop star, a superstar, and he was huge salaries. Um, when we came to Las Vegas, Las Vegas was, of course, and still is to a certain extent, a scandalous place. Um, at that time, Vegas also had one of the most famous basketball teams, uh, the running Rebels. In the first few years, they won the American uh, basketball championship, and the next year they came in second or something like that. And we thought the University of Las Vegas would want to have an economics department that was just as scandalous as their basketball team, which, which were called uh, running rebels. So we thought that maybe the university wants to have a running rebel economics department. Um, and um, that we both 
got the job there, in my case in particular, was due to the fact that several people who made the decision who should be hired in that year would retire the next year. So they didn't have to deal with those people who came in new. So they liked me personally and that's why I got the job. Um, then immediately uh, the department of the still remaining department uh, turned against us almost, inst almost instantly because they've uh, mentioned Tom Carroll for instance, he always blamed me for I would be working for to achieve the goal that people like him would know would never ever find a job anymore because I was of course in favor of privatizing all of these things um, and um, uh, the next year in order to counterbalance these two evil Austrians that they had there the department then hired a Marxist um, at that point, I uh, approached Murray and said, Murray, look, we know the president, we both knew the higher ups at the university, um, because we were in the gourmet club, and, and the higher ups were also in the gourmet club, so we knew them socially. Um, I said, why don't you go to the president and put in your weight, after all, you are the most prestigious member of this department and prevent this Marxist will get the position. Um, but Murray did not like personal confrontation at all. That was the only point where we did not agree. So I, I was in favor of personal confrontation. Um, now in my old age, not quite as much anymore, but I was a big fighter. Uh, but Murray was in personal relationships more a coward. I mean, he, he, he smashed the people in his writings like nobody else smashes people in his writings. But personally, he was just a nice teddy bear. Um, I was just uh, telling jokes and uh, changing the subject whenever he didn't like things just the way they went. Um, so we lost that opportunity of taking over the department and then things became from year to year more hostile. That, that chairman without any accomplishments whatsoever would write nasty evaluations of a man like Murray Rothbard was un unbelievable. I won't tell you what these chairmen wrote about me. Um, they tried to get rid of me, prevent me from getting tenure. Uh, they were, but I was, uh, I was a very popular teacher. Um, I actually fed Murray students because, as I said, Murray's lectures were somewhat disorganized. Um, without me feeding him students, he would have very few people who would have dared to 
to take his uh, take his class. So when they did not want to give me tenure, there were some sort of student riots going on. There was also donors of the university protesting at the president, and I was turned down first by the department, also by the dean, um, and then it was overruled by the president of the university because the president said, you know, I travel around the country and I have met many people who know Hoppe, but I have never met anybody who knows any of the other guys in the department. Um, so it was only because of some protection that I had from the upper ranks of the university that I survived that I survived, where otherwise it was extremely hostile. Even our students were mistreated. As soon as somebody figured out, oh, this, this guy is uh, a Rosebart guy, or a Hopper person, um, he, he was not safe to pass classes with, uh, with other professors. So the situation was <coughs> terrible. Um, and uh, after Murray's death, of course, the thing became even worse, and I was completely, completely alone. Um, and I never spent any hour in my in my office except my official office hour that I had to attend. And immediately left the place and just came five minutes before I had to start my lecture. Had no conversation with any with any of the uh, any of the colleagues. Let me <clears throat> let me just add to that. It's absolutely true that they discriminated and um, tried to force out students who followed uh, Murray and Hans. Uh, for example, I was there on two separate scholarships, and at one point, I think it was Carol or it could have been uh, the other guy, uh, made some sort of uh, hint that bad things could happen to me, and I basically told him he can you know do whatever he can do to himself because uh, I didn't really care. Um, I think that's one of the reasons Murray said go into a graduate program in accounting, not economics, because at least there they won't care. And it's true, they didn't care. Um, also, I was a great student. I think the only grade less than an A I ever got was from you, and the A minus you gave me once. Other than that, I was a 4.0 student. Anyway, um, Murray, Murray used to say that people um, oftentimes specialize in what they're least good at. And uh, so he used to make that story about Milton Friedman. And <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, Murray, he loved politics. He loved playing in politics because he was a great force for the Libertarian Party, founded a lot of organizations like Cato, um, obviously helped found the Mises Institute, um, wrote. I mean, he was a great polemicist, a uh, brilliant polemicist. Um, and in that role, he was, of course, I mean, second to none. I mean, he inspired legions. Uh, unfortunately, face to face, in person, um, like Hans was saying, he. Uh, um, he was a teddy bear. He was, he was no Machiavellian by any means. Uh, he was nice to everybody, uh, even people who were really, really mean to him, writing crappy evaluations that were full of whatever. Um, that, that, unfortunately, was a little bit of a weakness because I was there um, as one of the uh, groupies of uh, Hans and Murray when um, the department just uh, went out of their way again and again to crush Hans and uh, isolate Murray as much as they could. Uh, countless stories of uh, interested students, students from great schools, uh, whether it be you know, Stanford or Harvard or whatnot, wanting to come out to UNLV and uh, being heavily discouraged from coming. Uh, I remember one of the reasons I think Hans got his tenure was because the president of the university became aware of some software uh, millionaire who was getting ready to move to Las Vegas just to study under Murray for no other reason than to study under Murray and uh, had met, it was Carol or it was um, 
Who's the other one? Do you remember? I can't remember. One of the guys from the department. And the, he literally told him, don't come. Um, and that man wrote a letter to the president of the university, and I think it probably had some effect because the higher you are in the administration, the more you realize money needs to come in in order to make this all work. Whereas if you're just a tenured faculty member, you don't care. Your check comes every two weeks, no matter what you do. Um, but nonetheless, Murray was never discouraged, and, I, and I'm, I'm thankful that his productivity uh, wasn't, that I could tell, was really affected by all the negativity that was thrown his way because he was just fundamentally um, a very positive person, full of energy. Um, I don't think I ever saw him like depressed or down or or moody. It was, I mean, he would make fun of people and he said, ah, "That's ridiculous. Who says that?" Right? But he was he was never he was never in a bad mood, and that in that sense he was amazing and inspirational too. I got one more anecdote. Uh, just you know, sitting here thinking of my my contacts with Murray is. One of my very first uh, contacts in the very early days of the Mises Institute, one of the very first conferences was on uh, you know, the, the, the American government had just passed a, a, a law called the Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, there was a conference on regulation and I was asked to write a, write a paper on the likely effects of this new law. And that's one of the things we economists do. We use uh, uh, supply and demand analysis to figure out the likely uh, consequences intended and un unintended of, of, of these inter interventions in the, in the marketplace like this. And I knew Murray Rothbard was going to be there, so I, I spent a lot of time on this paper that I wrote, and I, I wrote several drafts of it, and I, and I just spent a lot of time thinking about it. I thought that I had pretty much covered every possible consequence of this uh, of this new law that, that was likely to happen in the future, and I'd, I'd already published several books and and lots of journal articles on this type of thing. So I was pretty good at economic analysis of regulation. Uh, it was one of my areas, and uh, and I remember uh, on the on the plane ride to where the conference was. Uh, so one more thing popped into my head, and I thought, well, I forgot, I should add that, but it's too late now, the paper's already been sent in and, and all that. And so I get there and I gave my presentation, and, and Murray was sitting there in the audience, and, and wouldn't you know it, the one comment he had was about that one thing that popped into my head on the airplane. And, and so he had thought of the one thing that I didn't, that I, that I left out. Also, he, he was so sharp about things like that. And at that same conference, after we were done for the day, I remember going into the, the Rathskeller, the basement of this hotel where there was a beer garden, and, uh, and Murray was leading everybody in German war anthems <laughs> and, and drinking beer. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and Murray didn't, um, you know, once you graduated and moved on, he didn't forget about you. I, in, in my case, I moved to Reno. And uh, in part of my um, my thesis, I wrote a little something about uh, tulip mania, uh, putting an Austrian spin on it that he thought was a, a contribution. And uh, so he urged me to try to get this published in a mainstream journal. And um, so, you know, I tried one time, two times, three times. And finally, I got up to six or seven you know, denials, and uh, I wrote him a letter and said, gee, Murray, I'm just, you know, I've had it with this, and 
And Murray, who obviously had a lot of things to do, actually answered my letter uh, very promptly, told me this was the same sort of treatment he had received when he tried to get um, published in mainstream journals, uh, went on to say how moronic they were and they didn't have any suggestions or anything like that. And, uh, but he uh, continued to urge me to press on and I did and I did. And of course, the last time I saw him, um, he said, well, uh, of course, we'll, um, we're going to publish it in the uh, Journal of Austrian Economics, I think it was called at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't a QJ, it was the, yeah, it was the review of Austrian Economics. Well, unfortunately, Murray passed um, in between, and uh, then I got a letter uh, uh, turning it down <laughs> by the uh, review of Austrian economics, uh, and I can tell by the uh, the wording of that review, I know who did it, uh, and that person shall remain nameless um, today. But um, but Murray uh, continued to uh, serve as an inspiration well beyond. Uh, you know, your time in class. And uh, so it was, he was just extraordinary in, uh, you know, the energy that he, he tried to infuse into you. And he could have easily, with um, the treatment he was receiving on campus, he could have easily, uh, you know, uh, dropped students very quickly and, and become bitter uh, and resentful. And he just, uh, like I say, he's the happiest guy I ever met. Yeah, he was called the happy warrior. I should, uh, there's one, one subject that I should uh, touch upon too. Murray Rothbard was the creator of the libertarian movement in the United States. Without Murray Rothbard, there would be no libertarian movement in the world. Um, that was a movement uh, that started basically in his living room and um, uh, Tom and I know all of these participants more or less well. Um, Murray also had uh, Murray also had some contact with Ayn Rand uh, for a while. He had a little circle that was called the Bastia Circle, and Rand had a little circle of uh, her followers in, um, uh, in, in, in Manhattan. And they met a few times, these two circles, but had a very quick fallout. Um, uh, Rand, uh, uh, as you know, is an avid atheist. Um, and uh, she found out that Mary Rosbart was married to a Christian woman uh, who somehow unbelievably believed in God. Um, and uh, since uh, the belief in God was considered to be absolutely intolerable and irrational in Rand's view, uh, Rand told him that um, he should give his wife a little pamphlet by, I think, Barbara Brandon, that was one of their followers, uh, um, uh, Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, uh, that was not their real name, they changed 
change that name in order to sound like the son of of Rand. Rand's name was of course also not Rand. Um, uh, but in any case, so he was supposed to present his wife with uh, with this pamphlet by Barbara Brandon, and um, if she would not become convinced that it is absolutely stupid to believe in God, then he should divorce her. Um, <laughs> And uh, and believe it or not, uh, Rosebart thought that was uh, a silly demand, and uh, and stopped having contact uh, contact with them. As far as the libertarian movement, as the libertarian movement is concerned, um, Murray was the founder of the Cato Institute. Um, the intellectual founder. Uh, the financial founder uh, was uh, David Koch. Uh, there are a, a number of brothers here. The, it's the biggest privately owned uh, company in the United States. Uh, the three uh, Koch brothers rank always among the top uh, top ten of the richest people in the United States. Um, and, um, uh, and David David Koch was for a while a fan of Mario's Bart's. He funded him for a while. Uh, actually, one of his books is dedicated to David Koch. And then they had a fallout. Um, because uh, the Cato Institute, in the view of Mario Rosbart, was supposed to be dedicated to radical Austrian economics, and in particular, the economics of Ludwig von Mises, whereas he considered Hayek to be some sort of sellout, which in my view, indeed, he is. Um, and uh, the Koch, however, wanted to gain influence uh, in politics and uh, move the Cato Institute in a direction to be moderate, acceptable, uh, willing to make compromises, uh, moving from the West Coast to Washington DC in order to be closer to the center of power. And, uh, and Rosebart didn't follow, uh, follow this line. And even though he was a stock owner of Cato, he was then ousted by the Koch uh, and told me, I'm, I'm not going to sue a multi-billionaire. There's no, no chance in, uh, in hell that I will win in this. So he, he gave up the struggle. The Cato Institute is still a very moderate place. They, in, they invite all central bankers constantly to give speeches and so forth. And after the fallout with uh, the Cato Institute, then Lou Rockwell uh, approached Rosebart and, um, uh, and uh, suggested to found the Mises Institute and make the Mises Institute, in a way, the, uh, the facility that would promote Rosebart's uh, writings and, uh, and work. And the Mises Institute is, in many ways, a Rosebart, a Rosebart Institute. Um, um, nowadays, I, I noticed in the, among these modern libertarians, um, Rosebart is in many circles also in the meantime hated. Um, 
because he, he, he was culturally, of course, a conservative man. And the libertarian movement has become a cultural Marxist movement in, in many ways. Um, the hippie lifestyle and that sort of stuff is more, more important than really fundamental questions. And um, uh, the last thing I should mention, however, is this. Without Rothbard, there would have been also no Ron Paul. Um, Ron Paul owes his entire ideas to Mises and Rothbard. And Ron Paul, who ran for presidency in the United States, never thinking that he would have the slightest chance. Um, but he did, of course, a great job in, in popularizing this. Uh, when we had maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of people who knew about what we were doing, Ron Paul made it possible that all of a sudden millions of people knew there exists something like Austrian economics and, and libertarianism. Uh, but there would have been no Ron Paul without the brain behind it, and that was, that was Murray Rothbard. So now I, um, I think that if you have any curiosity questions or so, I would be happy to, to have those questions addressed. Um, where's our guy with the microphone? I have a question for Professor Hoppe. You um, contended that Ludwig von Mises was the greatest economist we in Britain think that this distinction should be bestowed on Adam Smith, and in particular for his uh, principle of the invisible hand. That is to say, the principle that if every individual works to promote his own financial self-interest, this leads to the optimum economic outcome for society. I wonder if you could comment how, on how far Adam Smith could be regarded as a predecessor for, to this uh, libertarian school which you've been discussing. That is to a certain extent that is true. Um, Henry Hazlitt, um, when Human Action came out, um, he, he said something to the effect, um, Smith was a great economist, but as compared with the achievements of Mises, it is almost dilettantish, the work. Um, but of course, there is a, a general uh, sympathy uh, for, for Smith in, in the free market movement, except Murray Rothbard has written a two-volume history of economic thought, which is not just economic thought, it is just a general history um, and history of ideas blended in uh, a story of uh, history of economic thought. Murray Rothbard also pointed out that Adam Smith, of course, was also to a certain extent a forerunner of Karl Marx, because he did, he did believe in a moderate form um, of, uh, of the labor theory of, uh, of value. So he was quite critical uh, of, uh, of, Adam's, uh, of Adam Smith. 
I should, which, which is something that you might be interested in too. Mary Rothbard, of course, also wrote reviews of, um, of Charles Murray and uh, Richard Hornstein's Bell Curve book, a very positive review, uh, and actually pointed out that Philip Rushton was even better. Um, so you see, these sorts of things that Rothbard also did also make him unpopular in many libertarian circles nowadays, because Rothbard's interest was enormous. There was not a field in which he was not interested in, and he had not the slightest hesitation to endorse the, the Charles, Charles Murray and Hernstein book, and even pointing out, hey, Hans, you should also read Rushton, um, which I then immediately did. Please, Hans, uh, add something also about uh, his bunnies, because I think it's so endearing. You know, it's uh, it's I mean, not this at is, all yeah. uh, intellectual, but it's very sweet. <laughs> Again, I, I, I'm not 100% sure if this is the story is correct, but um, a man named George Köter. Um, who was the editor of Margaret von Mises' memoirs and also belonged to the Mises circle um, and lived until the age of 105 or something, that was with whom I became a little bit of a friend. Um, he told me that, um, and that first part is definitely true, that Murray Rothbard also had some rabbits in his apartment. Um, the rabbits, of course, is always just destroy the furniture. And, and, um, and then George Köter told me his son uh, was walking on, um, on Broadway. He lived close to Broadway on 88th Street, West Broadway. Um, that uh, that had, he had seen Murray Rothbard walking on Broadway with with a rabbit on the on a leash. <laughs> when I met him, he didn't have a rabbit anymore. So maybe the rabbit was run over while he was taking one of the walks with one of the walks with him. <laughs> I forget which one of you said uh, Murray pursued truth in, in wherever he went. He pursued truth in history and found it and so on. Um, which questions was he fascinated with that he did not know the answer to yet by the time he died? For example, Einstein sought the unified field theory and never found it. Were there any questions like that that he was fascinated with that he didn't have an answer for yet? He, he was an agnostic. So in, in terms of religion, he, he knew that he didn't know the answer. Um, he said, if I would have to convert to any religion, then, then I, it would be probably Catholicism. Um, but um, 
I, I maybe I should say, you, even though he grew up in, in a Jewish uh, uh, family and all his uh, relatives were Jewish, um, he was highly skeptical of skeptical of Jewish religion um, and was an anti-Zionist. Um, so he has been described in the United States, of course, as an, a self-hating Jew. Um, so Mises was also an anti-Zionist, so Mises was also a self-hating Jew, just like Paul Gottfried is a self-hating Jew. Um, 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 but as far as just I mean, were there unanswered questions? As far as history is concerned, of course, there are always unanswered questions. Um, he was interested in revisionist history. I mean, his, the way he conducted history was like, you, like a detective uh, works. It was like, follow the money. That's the most important thing that you have to do. That might not give you the exact answer to all the questions that you are seeking, but that's what every detective does in every detective story. Yeah, you look for a motive and you, and you look where does the money go. And he was very good in the age before computers, before Google and all the rest of it, to follow the money and uh, identify those people who were responsible for certain activities. Um, if certain laws were passed, it was always clear who benefits from this law and who loses from this law. So you know almost instantly you have to, if whatever a trade barrier is created, you can immediately identify almost what types of firms would gain the most if this law is passed. And in almost every case you find out that is true. You if you look at the personal connections, then you find, yes, indeed, that's where the money, the money was flowing. Now, in history, the questions are never fully answered. History is a different discipline than political philosophy or economics, where you just, logical deductions is what counts. In history, it is, of course, facts, circumstances, and things like that. So there are always lots of open questions when it comes to historical questions, whereas in the field of political philosophy, in the field of uh, theoretical economics, you, you can have killing arguments. I mean, that is just finishes you off. Uh, there's nothing that you can say anymore once the proof has been presented to you. Um, and Rothbard was, uh, a great philosopher too, he, so he knew of course the difference between theory on the one hand and history as an entirely different discipline on the other hand. Just a quick question, um, did Murray Rothbard ever let you know why he became interested in becoming an economist? What, what inspired him to take that path? Actually, his first field was mathematics. His under uh, undergrad uh, degree is in mathematics at Columbia. Uh, and then um, I think he became interested in e economics also because they lived next door and they are, when, he, when he was a, a boy living at his parents' house with, with Arthur Burns. Uh, Arthur Burns was an economist 
economist at Columbia University who then played a fateful role in preventing Murray from getting his PhD for a number of years later on. Um, but they were personal acquaintances from from very young age on. So I can, I'm not quite sure, but I can imagine that, um, that he, uh, after his mathematics studies, he then turned to economics maybe because he knew there's a famous economist living in the building and my parents know him and all the rest of it. Can I ask you, you mentioned that he lived for most of his life in a rent-controlled apartment, which from a free market thinker is interesting. Uh, did he continue to do that for sort of personal irony or did he simply think, well, if that's the market price for me, why don't I take it? Did he have, did he have a comment on that? Uh, I think his attitude there was, I would never advocate it. I actually write articles that should be abolished. Um, now I'm in it. As long as it is not abolished, I stay in here. Um, the apartment was a pretty, it was big. But it was, as, as you would expect of all rent controls, apartment was a, um, dilapidated. Uh, was a, was a lousy, lousy apartment. Uh, it was big, it was cheap, it was on the first floor. Um, but he, he stayed there un, until the end of his life. Yeah. Yeah, Arthur Burns prevented him from getting his dissertation approved, and that Rothbard was only successful doing it after Arthur Burns first, I think, became chief of economic advisors under the Nixon administration, then afterwards became um, uh, head of the Federal Reserve System, and finally in his life Arthur Burns was, I think, ambassador to Austria because he was a, a, a Jew of German origin could speak fluent German and was sent by the Reagan administration, I believe, to Austria. That was his, that was his last post. Um, I have a question about um, academic uh, hostility towards uh, Austrian school professors or or their students, uh, where do you think the hostility comes from? Like, what is it that that makes them hostile to you? I'm, I'm just curious, uh, as uh, scientists of human action, wh what's driving it? I think I think most most intellectuals are hostile towards free markets because they realize that the demand for intellectuals, the demand for words, for writing, is low among the public, um, and is also uh, fluctuating a lot. Um, and of course, seek the help of the state to get secure employment. Um, and he who pays you usually um, determines uh, your, your attitudes towards many things. Not necessarily so, but, um, 
by and large, I think in this, in this respect, Marx is not entirely incorrect to say that das Sein bestimmt das Bewusstsein, the being determines consciousness. So where the money comes from determines pretty much what you think. And as I said, some of my enemies in my department, they were always attacking me for, you are, you are working for me to be unemployed. Um, and that doesn't make you very popular. Uh, the hello. <laughs> I had the, the grace to meet him a couple times, and I have to can testify to that he's an inspiration. That he can be earnest and serious and still happy. And uh, this is nice to do. You you follow this tradition with his uh, conference, and I think it's in the tradition of uh, Rothbard. The question is, uh, I think he was, a, as I'm my understanding, he's a natural rights um, argument for uh, liberty, and you then developed it into even stronger a prioristic uh, argument for, for radical uh, freedom. Did he push you to do that, uh, or how did that go? No, I, that, that sort of stuff I developed before, I thought that was just a definite improvement of what he had done. And what was great about Murray was he immediately saw that too and thought that this is, this is great, great, great. I mean, it was not that he somehow was jealous or tried to find something that was uh, wrong with it. No, he, he was very generous giving credit to other people. He was not ever jealous of... Uh, anybody who had done something maybe a little bit better in some areas than he had, and quite to the contrary. He always encouraged me, you should do this, you should do this, read this guy. We also had great fun when, when we had our luncheons, when we talked about who should be smashed next. Um, so he, he said to me, Hans, you should smash that guy. And so, um, and, and it was full of glee when I then presented him with a paper, said, that's a great smash, that's wonderful what you do. <laughs> A quick question to the former students of Murray Rothbard. Uh, what were his exams like and how did he grade students? Well, they weren't multiple choice. <laughs> and I just happened to have one, as you would expect. Um, but he would give you about six, seven questions, and was that the same with... So six or seven questions, and you ask four, you'd answer four of them. And this was in a blue book. Uh, but a question, uh, and I'll just give you an, answer, uh, uh, an example of one of them. Uh, and this is one question. How did Adam Smith, speaking of Adam Smith, in The Wealth of Nations change his earlier views on the paradox of value on, on, and on his friend David Hume's international monetary analysis? What fundamental attitude of Smith might account for these changes, as well as his positions on usury laws and on taxation of consumer luxuries? What were these positions? Explain fully. <laughs> Now, if you were an MBA student and you suddenly thought, oh, EC742, I think this will fill up one of my, you know, one of my electives, those folks, when they got one of these, they were, um, shall we say, unhappy. So. 
if if you were um, um, if you understood Rothbard, if you were a groupie, a fellow traveler, I mean, his exams are almost like catnip because they give you a chance to be a little mini-Murray and, and, and see how much you were able to absorb um, during the lectures and in your own independent reading. Um, when you did papers for him, I, um, he made me, didn't make me, he told me to write a paper on uh, the history of accounting. <clears throat> and. Uh, that process was more of an evolutionary process. So you'd come and you'd give him the first paper and he'd say, yeah, you know, here's a list of 10 books you need to read about accounting, right? Um, and history of accounting. And then you'd go back and say, yeah, oh, this is professor in New Jersey, uh, whatever, uh, Seton Hall. Yeah, here's his number. Call him. Uh, he'll fill you in on some more. <laughs> so you keep going back to him until you, you know, finally got to a stopping point. In other words, you'd figured everything out and maybe came up with something that might add to the body of knowledge. But yeah, his exams were fun. and. Um, give you a chance to really show them that maybe you'd listened a little bit. Yeah, in contrast, my exams were all true and false. <laughs> but, a, but a lot of, I mean, 180 questions true and false. Um, <laughs> but I had, I must say, in my defense, I taught classes of 200 people, and Murray taught classes of maybe at the most 10. <laughs> so. <laughs>